Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I'm Nora Lesserson, a PhD student in history at University College London. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Professor David Gutman. He is Associate Professor of History at Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York. He is the author of several articles and book reviews on the topics of migration, mobility, control, and genocide. He is also the author of a brand new book that we will be talking about today, The Politics of Armenian Migration to North America, 1885 to 1915, Sojourners, Smugglers, and Dubious Citizens, published in 2019 by Edinburgh University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Gutman. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for laboring on this Labor Day weekend. <laughs> oh, no worries. It's a beautiful, beautiful day. So, and beautiful I, day to podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I really enjoyed reading your book, and I really appreciated especially how clearly you wrote it. So I think you've given us a lot of good key terms that can help us kind of unpack your story. So let's start with um, one of the most important key terms, I think, which is the migrant. Who is the migrant in your book, and why was the migrant migrating? All right. Uh, so yeah, this is, this is a good question. Uh, basic but centrally important. Uh, as the, the, the title suggests, uh, the migrants that I'm discussing are primarily uh, Armenians. They or are at least classified by either the Ottoman state or in some cases the uh, American government, the U.S. government, as being Armenian. Um, so, you know, regardless of necessarily how, they're class how these migrants are classifying themselves. Uh, and... I see this migration to North America as an outgrowth of longer-standing uh, migratory trends. So uh, the region that these migrants are coming from uh, is primarily in and around the uh, city of Harput or Harpert in what is now central eastern Turkey, then in the kind of eastern provinces uh, of the Ottoman Empire, which were primarily populated by Kurds and Armenians. And... Uh, well before the 1880s, when uh, these migrants start going to the United States, there's a much longer-standing uh, pattern of Armenians, both from this region, the Harput region, but also elsewhere uh, in the Ottoman East, migrating to places like Istanbul, uh, Aleppo, uh, Tiflis or Tbilisi or Baku in the Caucasus, uh, and what I argue in the book is that beginning in the 1880s, a certain conjuncture happens uh, of the arrival, for example, of missionaries uh, and the establishment uh, of Euphrates College, which is a major missionary institution uh, in the city of Harput um, in the 1870s, uh, but also the arrival of, uh, of steamship travel. Uh, to secondary ports in the Ottoman Empire, so not just Istanbul, but increasingly ports on the Black Sea and Mediterranean that significantly reduce the cost of travel and make it possible for, uh, for these migrants to start migrating even further afield. And uh, large numbers, beginning in the late 1880s and going forward, uh, end up particularly in the small industrial towns such as Worcester, uh, Providence, uh, Fitchburg, Lynn, uh, surrounding the city of Boston, uh, but also elsewhere, New York, of course. Um, some end, end up as, as far west as Fresno. Um, and it's the, this, this conjuncture of, of, of this longstanding migratory practice, practices of um, 
of the arrival of missionaries, of the emergence of cheap steamship travel uh, that allows many of these Armenians, uh, of these migrants, to, to make this trip further, further afield. Uh, what's special, what I argue, what's special about the Harput region compared to elsewhere, for example, Pitlis, Sasun, Van, why are people migrating from Harput, not necessarily as many, uh, especially before the 1908 uh, Young Turk Revolution? Why are so many uh, migrating, especially from the Harput region? And I argue that there's something special about the Harput region, that the sort of political uh, and economic turmoil uh, and violence in many cases that is uh, that Armenians, especially further east in places like Sasun, are facing. Uh, Armenians in the Harput region are facing it to a somewhat lesser degree. And in a sense, uh, there's greater economic and political stability, at least compared to some of these other regions in uh, the Ottoman East. And so uh, Armenian migrants from the Harput region are more willing to take the risk uh, of this long-distance migration uh, than their counterparts uh, elsewhere in the Ottoman East. Uh, and again, the and it's important to emphasize, I use the term migrant rather than emigrant or immigrant, in part because the book is focusing especially on their movements back and forth. Um, and I want to emphasize that the movement is not always unidirectional. Uh, most migrants are leaving uh, with the idea, at least in mind, of coming back, of returning to their homes in the Harput region at some point. Uh, now, does everybody who migrate return? No, by no stretch of the imagination, but a large number do. And again, many are leaving, most are leaving with that idea that they will eventually return. So I want to emphasize that this isn't just a unidirectional movement, but rather uh, it's being undertaken with the idea that people are going to return. And that's very similar, again, to these older migration patterns when uh, Armenian porters, for example, went to find work in Istanbul, would work in Istanbul for five or six years maybe, uh, and then return to their home communities. And there's, there's a, a great term in, in Armenian for this, the pandukt of the, uh, of the, of the mobile laborer, uh, that, that migration to North America is built on these older patterns. Uh, and so that really defines who these migrants are. Uh, but of course, you know, their movements, the way they move, how they move transforms over time. But, uh, but that's how uh, the migrant in our story is created. Fascinating, really interesting. Um, and I think what you're talking about, this return and leaving, you spoke to the economic sort of stability that allowed um, these migrants to take such a risk. And I think also the economic incentive to take such a risk. So when I ask you my next question, which is about the state, another key term to my mind, um, if you could also speak a little bit about how the economy comes in here as well. So who is the state in your book and what is its relationship to the migrants? I think a lot of us, a lot of listeners might have a sort of, um, they might assume they know what the state's relationship is here, but maybe you can tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so this is this is an important question, and and in the book, the state that I'm talking about is primarily uh, the the Ottoman state, uh, and primarily the pre-1908 Ottoman state, the one that is controlled by uh, the autocratic Sultan Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who uh, 
in the aftermath of the 1908 Young Turk uh, revolution is forced to relinquish most of his direct power. Uh, he is eventually uh, forced to abdicate the throne altogether in 1909. Uh, these are in many ways two very different states, the pre-1908 Ottoman state and the post-1908 Ottoman state take very different forms. Uh, and then also, in addition to the Ottoman state, I also discuss uh, in the book um, the United States government's relationship to these migrants, in particular um, consular officials in the Ottoman Empire who are encountering migrants who have returned, uh, particularly those who have naturalized as U.S. citizens a while abroad. And so the question of the status of these naturalized citizens who have returned to the Ottoman Empire becomes a major uh, sticking point, both between the U.S. government, the Ottoman government, but also the U.S. government uh, and these returnees. Uh, again, claim U.S. citizenship. In addition, uh, the state in, my, in the book is both an abstract concept and something very concrete. I'm arguing, and, and the book really is a study of how state power shapes the migration process. And so there is this overriding concept of state power that is arguably uh, an abstract. Uh, but it's my goal in the book to also demonstrate how this power, how the power of the state, whether it's the uh, Ottoman government or the U.S. government, is exercised through these various channels, through these various characters, whether it's uh, local governors, uh, whether it's local elites, um, police officials, um, port uh, city bureaucrats, that there is this entire network uh, of people who are responsible for exercising the central state's will on the ground. And very frequently, uh, those characters, those uh, officials, those local elites, their interests do not always align with that of the state. And, uh, and I should, before I go any further, mention that uh, the reason why this story is so compelling, why am I talking about uh, Armenian migrants, why am I talking about the relationship to the state? Uh, the Ottoman state views, again, especially before the 1908 revolution, Armenian migration, and particularly Armenian migration, we can get to that uh, perhaps in a little bit, uh, about the kind of specificity of the Armenian experience here, uh, views Armenian overseas migration, particularly migration to North America, as a threat. Uh, the Ottoman state, beginning in the 1880s, when this large-scale migration is emerging, uh, views Armenian migrants or believes that those who are going to North America are having their minds polluted, this is the language that the state uses, uh, by Armenian political organizations operating uh, in the United States and elsewhere, and that and the Ottoman state fears that those Armenian migrants who have gone to North America had their minds polluted by these ideas being put forth by, uh, by Armenian political organizations will return to their home communities and spread all sorts of sedition uh, and dissent and political turmoil. So from the perspective of the Ottoman state, migration and the emergence of uh, Armenian political organizations uh, like the Hinchakian Revolutionary Party, the uh, Armenian Revolutionary Federation, or the Dashnak Tsutsiun, uh, views these uh, migration and the emergence of these organizations as, as being two sides of the same coin. Um, and so, in a sense, there's a certain paranoia that emerges uh, on the part of the Ottoman bureaucracy about 
preventing migrants from leaving to begin with, uh, and then also preventing those who have made it out of the Ottoman Empire from returning to the Ottoman Empire. And so this creates this dynamic in which the Ottoman state is seeking to control, prevent both outward migration and also uh, return migration. But very frequently, as the, as the book discusses, uh, these officials were tasked with uh, enforcing these bans on both out-migration and return migration. Uh, their interests are in conflict with the central state. Uh, they, so there are many stories of uh, police officials, even governors, local elites, uh, in fact, aiding migrants in their efforts to leave or aiding migrants in their efforts to return. Uh, and so... This, so state power, then, the effort of the state to enforce this ban on both out-migration and return is mediated through this vast network uh, of, of, of individuals, uh, of people who, again, sometimes are towing the state line, but often are at times are working against it and are sometimes doing both at the same time. Uh, and that really helps to shape uh, in very interesting and fascinating ways how people migrate. Yeah, so I really like this distinction between sort of abstract state power and personal state power, and that there are these agents of state power in the shape of human beings. As such, you know, these human beings have, have minds, and a sort of Ottoman bureaucratic mental universe takes shape, which you've already started talking about. But if you could talk a little bit more about this sort of mental universe that's um, being created at this time, and why does it ultimately matter so much? Right. So, uh, again, I think I want to emphasize, uh, I think I should reemphasize uh, just how important to the story, this sense that emerges that isn't, that I argue really is not grounded in reality, that Armenian migration and um, the increasingly visible efforts of these Armenian political organizations to challenge the Ottoman state whether that's by, for example, in Geneva or in Tiflis or in the United States, writing editorials that decry Ottoman state violence against Armenian communities on the Ottoman East. By the beginning of the 20th century, these operations become much more bold, so that in 1905, for example, uh, members of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation attempt to assassinate Sultan Abdulhamid II outside of his uh, palace in Istanbul. Uh, it's an assassination attempt that fails, but but only feeds into this deepening paranoia that the um, that the Ottoman state of Sultan Abdulhamid II has, uh, especially in relationship to its Armenian populations. This paranoia, the sense that Armenian migration is directly linked to the activities of these uh, political organizations, I argue, again, is not necessarily rooted in reality. Uh, I don't see much evidence coming from Ottoman sources uh, as well as uh, the Armenian sources that I have mostly in translation uh, and also um, American consular records that suggest that uh, migrants who are going back and forth are involved um, in any real way uh, with these um, with these organizations. It's not to say that they don't harbor uh, sympathy for uh, the efforts of these political organizations, but again, the idea that the Ottoman state has in mind is that, that migrants coming and going pose a real and direct threat to the political stability 
uh, of the Ottoman East and the authority of the Ottoman state. And so that sentiment, that notion, that concept, which was pervasive from the 1880s up until uh, the fall uh, of the Hamidian regime in 1908, uh, it, it pervades everything that the Ottoman state is doing in relationship to, uh, to these migrants. But at the same time, again, Ottoman state power is being mediated through these networks of officials who are on the ground, whether it's in the Harput region, whether it's in these port cities, and their interests, their mental world is not often the same, not always the same uh, as high-ranking Ottoman bureaucrats in Istanbul. And so uh, one reason why the, the subtitle of the book is Sojourner Smugglers and Dubious Citizens is that in order to leave the Ottoman Empire, increasingly also in order to re-enter the Ottoman Empire, Armenian migrants are forced to go through these increasingly sophisticated smuggling networks. Um, these smuggling networks would not work without the participation of state authorities at every level. Uh, and oftentimes state authorities are participating in these smuggling networks because uh, they stand to make uh, a nice profit, uh, off of taking bribes or selling documents or looking the other way when uh, migrants are being rowed out to uh, to steamers waiting um, offshore uh, outside of uh, Ottoman uh, seaports. Uh, but also in many cases, uh, many of these Ottoman authorities are also deeply integrated into these local communities. And so often cases don't see the wisdom uh, or the logic in enforcing uh, these bans on migration or impeding the mobility of uh, people from the communities uh, in which they're stationed. And so, and also, I should also add that, that there is often wide-scale disagreement between regional officials in different parts of the Ottoman Empire about who should be really responsible for uh, enforcing these bans on migration. Is it the responsibility of uh, authorities, Ottoman authorities in the Harput region to prevent people from leaving? Or is it the responsibility of uh, Ottoman officials in port cities to uh, prevent uh, Armenians from getting aboard, uh, from sneaking aboard uh, uh, foreign steamers in those port cities. So there are all of these disagreements, all of these uh, instances in which uh, Ottoman authorities are hesitant to enforce uh, this ban on migration, and often cases that's because of how they see themselves in relationships, in the relationship to the communities uh, in which they're stationed. And so again, there are all of these sort of conflicting imperatives uh, that and in many ways, as you, as you put it, sort of conflicting mental, mental universes. Istanbul, high-ranking Ottoman authorities see in every case Armenian migrants as an absolute threat. Uh, that sentiment isn't always shared by uh, Ottoman authorities on the ground. Uh, and so there are all these conflicts and contradictions that limit the ability uh, of the Ottoman state to really prevent people from migrating um, or returning. But at the same time, again, state power, to go back to that abstract, is clearly shaping how people leave. Uh, the reason why uh, Armenians are being forced to travel through these increasingly sophisticated uh, smuggling networks is because uh, they're trying to avoid uh, the efforts of the Ottoman state to impose and, and, and maintain this ban. Uh, increasingly, they have to re-enter the Ottoman Empire through 
uh, dangerous, expensive, difficult means. Uh, and the reason for that, again, is because they're having to avoid coming in contact with uh, authorities of the state who are trying to prevent them from being able to leave or to return. So although, as I show, the Ottoman state in this period is quite weak, uh, it is sort of riven by these internal um, conflicts and contradictions. At the same time, it's still very much able to shape uh, the process of migration and how people leave and how people return. Yeah. So now I, at least, and I'm sure most of us can't help but be reminded of the present when we're hearing you tell this story. And I don't know if there's something about mobility that scares people or what, but that's also a question that comes to my mind. But could you speak a little bit about how uh, the story you tell in your book speaks to our present moment? Sure. Um, so I, the initial seeds for this project uh, come out of some research that I did uh, all the way back in 2007 in the uh, American archives, the U.S. government archives in um, College Park, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, and it was looking at consular records there that I found the story of uh, these migrants coming and going. And I was especially fascinated by, uh, by this issue of return migration uh, because uh, I think justifiably I wondered why any uh, – why would an Armenian migrant want to return to the Ottoman Empire? Why, especially in the aftermath of the Hamidian massacres uh, of the mid-1890s, um, and uh, of the uh, Adana pogroms in 1909 uh, and the looming the idea that the, the genocide itself in 1915 is looming. Why would anybody want to return? And I really wanted to investigate that story. Uh, and, and that was originally what, what, this, what this project was about. Uh, it was as uh, I was diving into the Ottoman sources uh, and Ottoman source material where I uncovered the stories uh, of these smuggling networks. And these, uh, these documents are incredibly rich and allow me to recreate, uh, I think in pretty, pretty minute detail, how these smuggling networks functioned, how they transformed over time, uh, how they responded to the efforts of uh, the Ottoman state to enforce this ban. Uh, it was in the process of recreating these stories that when I started turning on the news or reading uh, news reports on the Internet about what was happening uh, uh, in the Mediterranean in the present day, uh, especially in the aftermath uh, of the Syrian civil war, uh, the aftermath of the collapse of the Libyan state, uh, these, these very dramatic stories about the efforts uh, of migrants to make it across and refugees to make it across the Mediterranean and the efforts of uh, of EU authorities increasingly to militarize the Mediterranean border, how that was making the process of migration more dangerous, that I saw a real parallel between the story that I was telling and the story that both journalists and increasingly anthropologists and sociologists uh, were telling about the present, uh, both in the Mediterranean, uh, but also elsewhere uh, for example, the, the U.S. southern border, uh, that there are distinct parallels uh, between uh, the, the strategies that the migrants that I was talking about and, and, and those who were assisting them to leave and return, what they were going through, 
and what migrants in the present were going through. And uh, I thought it important to, to raise that point. Often historians are told to be careful of making presentist arguments, but in many ways it was this contemporary literature about how uh, migrant smuggling, uh, how that process works in the present period that helped me make sense of what I was seeing in the past. And increasingly, I thought it's important to, to have a greater discussion between those scholars in anthropology and sociology who are working on the present uh, and historians who are working on similar or parallel dynamics in the past uh, to compare notes and to figure out what are the similarities in these, in these cases that are separated across time. And, and again, what I discovered is what we're seeing in the present um, when we see these horrible stories of people drowning uh, in the Mediterranean or being turned back and forced to go back to Libya or go back to Turkey uh, instead, of, instead of being uh, allowed to step foot on European soil, um, what is, why is it becoming so dangerous to migrate in the 21st century? Uh, why is it that people are willing to, to go to these extraordinarily, extraordinary lengths uh, to bypass uh, the efforts of states to prevent them from migrating, in some cases even crowding 100 people onto uh, you know, a flimsy rubber dinghy uh, or a barely seaworthy ship. Why are they doing that? Um, they're doing it for the same reasons that the migrants that I talk about 120 years earlier are increasingly taking on more expensive uh, and more uh, dangerous routes uh, to avoid capture to avoid uh, running into state authorities who might prevent them from either leaving or returning. Uh, the major difference between the, the present and, and, and the past, or the past that I discuss, is that despite all of the changes in technology between the late 19th and early 20th century and the present day, uh, despite the fact that we have airplanes and, uh, and motor vehicles and cell phones and the internet and, and time and space themselves seem so much more compressed uh, today than they were in the past. Why is it so much more dangerous and so much more deadly to migrate today, uh, especially in an unauthorized fashion, than it was um, 110, 120 years ago when these technologies did not exist? And, and it took much more time to migrate, and uh, people were walking by foot. And my explanation is, is be, it's, it's going back to that issue of state power. Uh, the Ottoman state, even in its day, is relatively weak. It's very weak compared to modern states with all of the weapons and tools and surveillance methods that they have at their disposal. Uh, and the exercise of state power and the effort to prevent mobility uh, especially unauthorized mobility across borders, uh, makes uh, migration that much more difficult in the present than it was 120 years ago. And I hope that, that my story helps bring that out uh, even more uh, about the role that states play. Uh, even those that view themselves, for example, the European Union um, and the individual states of the European Union, like Italy and Germany, that see themselves as uh, upholding a certain international order based on human rights and based on uh, the inherent dignity of all people, uh, their efforts to prevent uh, unauthorized border crossings or to prevent people from crossing the Mediterranean has made migration that much more 
dangerous, has made it, again, much more dangerous to be um, uh, a Syrian or a Bangladeshi or sub-Saharan African migrant trying to cross from North Africa uh, into the southern into Southern Europe today than uh, than Armenians who are trying to uh, avoid the efforts of the Ottoman state to prevent them from moving. Yeah. So as you're saying, as long as you're careful not to project the present onto the past, but rather to have the past and the present sort of speak to each other and maybe even animate each other or draw out what's there and not there. It can be a very powerful way to sort of uh, re-examine the, the phenomenon you're looking at, really. So kind of to that end, how does the story you tell in your book contribute to current Ottoman, Armenian and American historiographies and really complicate our understanding of Armenians and Armenian experience in the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, so this is I, uh, this is a, a complicated question, actually, even though it, it seems in many ways very simple. And I think uh, because this is because this is the Society of Armenian Studies podcast, I want to start first with 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 Armenian historiography, and and this is in some ways the most difficult aspect uh, part to, to describe because both. I would say in Ottoman historiography, and I think um, in historiographies of multi-ethnic empires more broadly, um, there is, I think, very justifiably so, a desire to move away from uh, sort of older nationalist historiographies that tended to take the experiences of each group in isolation uh, as if they weren't part of a broader whole. So in the case of the Ottoman experience, well, we look at Lebanese or Arab or Syrian or Greek or Armenian or Assyrian or Jewish experiences as all separate from one another, or Kurdish or Turkish experiences as all separate from one another, and these groups aren't in conversation or these historiographies aren't in conversation with one another. Recent historiography over the past two decades has really moved away from that. We have to look at how these different groups uh, that made up the Ottoman population as a whole interacted with one another. They didn't exist in isolation. Uh, And yet my book talks about specifically Armenian migrants uh, and and emphasizes that. This is a book specifically about Armenian migration. And so in some ways, some might look at that as somehow sort of taking a step back into that older uh, approach. And and I hope it's not that case. Instead, the reason I decide, decide with the book in particular to emphasize the Armenian experience uh, is because in many ways the Armenian experience, uh, especially as mediated through its interactions with the state, the way that the Ottoman state in particular viewed Armenian-ness, uh, and viewed Armenians in particular, even in comparison to Assyrians and Muslims who are migrating alongside these Armenian migrants, uh, the state viewed the Arme- viewed Armenianness and Armenian identity uh, as particularly and especially dangerous. And as a result, the Armenian migratory experience, even when compared to other groups, other Ottoman groups that are migrating at the same time, is viewed in a very particular, very specific, and very hostile way from the perspective of the state. Uh, and in that way, the Armenian experience of, migra- of migration is, is unique uh, and needs to be understood in that way. Uh, 
And, and again, it's not to isolate Armenians from other populations, but rather to say in the same way, for example, in the American case, Chinese migrants after the uh, passage of the Exclusion Act in 1882 uh, and the Scott Act in 1888, the Chinese experience is very different from of migration experience into the United States is very different from the Jewish or the Italian um, uh, and even the Irish one, especially in the late 19th and into the early 20th centuries. Um, the same as, is the case with, with Ottoman Armenians who are migrating. Because of the way the state is responding to them, their experience is, is, is very unique. And in that sense, I feel like it's important to understand how states classify populations and how uh, states don't always operate uh, in the same way uh, to different populations. And so that's why, again, the focus is, is, is particularly on the Armenian experience. But at the same time, I think the book also challenges this idea that the Arme that Armenians are in constant opposition to the Ottoman state and vice versa, despite the fact that the Ottoman state is targeting Armenians for special treatment, uh, for uh, especially trying to limit their mobility. At the same time, at the local and regional and even at the imperial levels, you have uh, Armenians who are very much integrated into the Ottoman state system. Uh, and so it's often the case that it's that it's Armenians themselves who are part of this state apparatus that is both trying to prevent migration, but also uh, uh, sort of below the scenes, uh, either profiting off of it or even encouraging it. Um, and that that despite the violence of the mid 1890s, um, despite the increasing uh, political and economic turmoil that Armenian communities face throughout the Ottoman East. Uh, these migrants still see themselves as part of these communities. Uh, it's why they're returning. Uh, it's why, uh, you know, when they're abroad, they don't see themselves as sort of cutting themselves off from the homeland, but are still very much a part of it. Um, and up until 1914, up until a year before the outbreak, or the year that World War I begins, and, and a year before the outbreak uh, of the Armenian Genocide, you still have large numbers of people returning. They don't sense what's coming. Uh, they don't sense the, the absolute break that the genocide is, that annihilates these communities. Uh, there's no sense that that's coming, that that's in the offing. Uh, and and I think that, that the book really also brings that out. At the same time, there is that Armenians are targeted for um, for violence in the case of the mid-1890s massacres, but also for discriminatory treatment that is not uh, that is not necessarily given out to the same degree to other uh, communities within the Ottoman Empire. Despite that fact, uh, these Armenian migrants still see themselves as very much part of this broader system, still see themselves as very much rooted in these communities in the Ottoman East. And so I hope that comes out in the book, that that it's both challenging this concept that that that, uh, that all communities, or especially all non-Muslim communities uh, in the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, basically uh, face the same forms of, uh, of, of discrimination or, or treatment as, as, as second-class citizens. I argue that we have to be more careful that, in fact, there is a lot of specificity based on uh, how the state views these particular groups, and so we have to be mindful of that. 
uh, at the same time, not to reproduce the sense that, uh, that, that by the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the ge this genocide that will occur in 1915 is inevitable, that these Armenian migrants and the communities that they belong to sense that it's coming. Uh, there's, there's just no evidence that that's the case. And in fact, I argue that, that the opposite is the case, that 1915 comes as a real surprise and that it is a true breaking point, that, that this vibrant universe that, that I hope comes through in the book is completely annihilated in 1915. It's destroyed. It's a major breaking point. Uh, and, and you can't conceive of that before the case, right? Nobody could conceive that 1915 was coming. Uh, and, and, and I think that hopefully that argument or hopefully that, um, that, um, answer also helps to give an idea of, of, of how I think this book contributes to Ottoman historiography along with what I was saying about what comprises the Ottoman state, how we understand how Ottoman state power is exercised. Uh, but I do hope that also uh, historians of migration more broadly, um, American histo historians of American migration, but also historians of global migration, can find something useful in this book, uh, especially because what I think many migrant migration historians will f find surprising is the degree to which the Ottoman state is part of this broader turn in the late 19th and particularly in the first decades of the 20th century toward greater exclusion, um, greater uh, militarization of borders and border control, move toward, toward harder and firmer borders, to the use of identity documents uh, and mandating the use of, of identity documents for those who travel uh, across borders that the Ottoman state is very firmly a part of uh, this broader process, that it's in very, very close dialogue with the U.S. government. Uh, and so I talk at length about how uh, the Ottoman state and its efforts essentially to turn the U.S. government against uh, Armenian migrants, especially those who are returning and claiming U.S. citizenship, that the Ottoman state, Ottoman consular officials and diplomatic officials in the U.S. are very aware and familiar with uh, emerging U.S. government policy on migration. They look, for example, to uh, Chinese exclusion as um, – so this is Ottoman consular officials looking at the example, for example, of Chinese exclusion as justifying their own efforts to – uh, debar Armenians who attempt to re-enter the Ottoman Empire, especially those who have claimed U.S. citizenship. And increasingly over time, especially by the first decade of the 20th century, their efforts work. The U.S. government increasingly agrees with the Ottoman state that uh, Armenian migrants, especially those who return to the Ottoman Empire, uh, do threaten uh, the Ottoman state in the same way that many um, both within the U.S. government apparatus, but also within the broader population more generally view, for example, Italian migrants as, uh, or Jewish migrants as posing a, a particularly um, dangerous political threat to uh, America, to U.S. political stability, especially in the aftermath of the assassination of William McKinley in 1901. Uh, the U.S. government agrees or essentially is sympathetic to what the Ottoman state is saying and uh, agrees effectively to denaturalize or not recognize the citizenship uh, status 
of Armenians who return to the Ottoman Empire. So effectively, they are denaturalized by fiat, which I discuss in much greater detail in the book. Um, and so, again, I'm hoping that both Ottoman historians but also migration historians find that useful, that, that, that concepts like deportation, which uh, many of these uh, returnees, especially after the 1905 assassination attempt on Sultan Abdul Hamid II, uh, the Ottoman state starts deporting individual uh, people found to have returned unlawfully to their home communities uh, in the Harput region. Uh, this concept of deportation that, that the Ottoman state engages in uh, is done in close cooperation uh, with the U.S. government and essentially with the uh, both implicit and ex explicit backing of the U.S. government. The U.S. government effectively allows the Ottoman state to deport uh, Armenian returnees, including those who had claimed U.S. citizenship. Uh, so uh, I hope that this book brings a kind of this, what is a kind of non-Western example, an example that isn't very well integrated into broader global uh, migration historiographies. I hope this book brings and helps to bring uh, this story both the Armenian experience and the Ottoman experience uh, into that conversation um, yeah. uh, in a much deeper way than it has uh, in the past. Totally. And I mean, very clearly, uh, there's a lot, there's many stories in the story you're telling. There's probably even more than we've, we've discussed here. I know we were talking about how you kind of just have to pick the story you're going to tell and tell it and then hope that others maybe pick up some threads that you've discussed. So just to wrap things up, I have two kind of related questions sort of about this. What, you know, what do you find continually compelling about this topic? What is really singing to you in the story you've chosen to tell, even after spending all this time with it? And then maybe relatedly, what's next for you? What, um, have you started on a new research project yet? And is it at all connected to this book? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question. When you just finish a book um, and it's out and you're finally done and get some distance from it, sometimes you just want to further push it away. Uh, and, of course, that's, that's part, of, uh, part of, uh, of what I'm feeling at this point with the book finally finished. But, of course, it's still very much – this material still very much excites me. Um, and I think uh, perhaps I can briefly talk about um, – as an to, to illustrate what I've been discussing and the dynamics that I've been discussing, the story of Ohanis Topalian, uh, whose, uh, whose picture uh, graces the cover of the book. He's the individual laying down with the X by his head. Uh, Ohanis Topalian migrated to the United States in 1891. He uh, naturalized as an American citizen in 1898 uh, and joined the U.S. Army, uh, was a veteran of the Spanish-American War. And then in 1901... Uh, desiring to get married uh, and see his family again, he returns to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and when he comes back, uh, when he arrives uh, at uh, the port city of Samsun on the Black Sea, uh, he's forced to hide the fact uh, that he had naturalized as an American citizen. So when he re-enters the Ottoman Empire, he does so actually with an Ottoman uh, internal passport, uh, he never makes any mention that he had been in the United States, never makes mention of the fact that he had naturalized as an American citizen, although he uh, keeps his, his uh, both his military discharge paper and naturalization paper uh, safe in his uh, belongings so that he has them available. Uh, he gets married. He starts a family. 
And then in 1906, he wants to uh, return with his wife and young daughter to the United States. And he goes to the American consulate at Sivas. He's not actually not a Harperzi. He's not from Harput, but uh, from the city of Kayseri, about uh, 150 miles to the south and uh, west of the Harput region. Uh, he goes to the American consulate in Sivas, uh, which is in modern-day uh, central Turkey, also known as Sebastia. And he, uh, he goes to the consul and he says, I'm an American citizen. Uh, look, I was a member of the U.S. Army. I fought in the Spanish-American War. I was honorably discharged. Here are my naturalization papers. Will you give me a passport so that my family can safely return to the United States? And the consul says, no. We can't help you. Uh, because you returned uh, to the Ottoman Empire, hiding the fact that you had naturalized uh, as an American citizen, you have effectively given up your status as an American citizen, and we can't help you. And um, you can imagine how devastating uh, Ohanis Topalian must have found this answer. Uh, a year later, he pops up again in Egypt, where he visits the consul, U.S. consul in Alexandria uh, in Egypt uh, to try to get a passport there. He's given the same response there. Somehow, though, he eventually makes it back uh, to Providence, Rhode Island with his family. His family escapes the genocide. He lives the rest of his life uh, in the United States. But his case is particularly illustrative of these dynamics that I'm talking about, about how uh, dangerous in many ways or risky it is uh, particularly for Armenians to both migrate and return, and that by the first decade of the 20th century, it's not only the Ottoman state that sees them as a threat, that sees them as a problem, uh, but also the United States government. And it's the extent to it, and again, Ohanis Topalian's story really uh, demonstrates the extent to which this is the case. He's a veteran, he can prove he's a veteran. Um, you would think that the United States consul would, would, would welcome him and extend these, um, these uh, benefits and privileges of citizenship, uh, but they don't. And uh, so, again, I hope that story really does illustrate uh, the dynamics that I'm talking about in the book. Uh, as for uh, future research, I have a couple ideas in mind. I really want to explore in greater detail uh, this question of um, – of border security and the militarization of borders uh, in the first decade of the 20th century using the Ottoman experience as kind of a, a takeoff point. Uh, and I also would like to, to, to dive more into the kind of economic and political dynamics that uh, are driving especially Armenian life in the Harput region uh, in the years before the Armenian genocide. There's a really rich story to be told there about in many ways, the uniqueness and the specificity of the Harput region uh, and how we understand how, um, how the kind of unique trajectories that different regions uh, of the Ottoman East take in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, how that helps us understand the very different ways in which the genocidal uh, process unfolds uh, in 1915. Uh, so these are both ideas that I'm that I'm working with after I come down a little bit from the hangover of having this, <laughs> this book done. Uh, but but those are ideas that I have in mind and, and hope to be able to explore in the near future. 
That sounds great. And in the meantime, people can pick up your your new book, which I think really does speak to people with, you know, so many different concerns, Ottoman history, Armenian history, migration history, American history, world history. I mean, you've, you've got it all covered. So there's something for everyone. And thanks for so much for spending time with me this morning discussing the book. Uh, it was a great conversation. And um, I hope we'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you.